Thought Leadership from PwC. Coming to you with a look at the latest developments in voluntary ESG reporting. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. If you've been with us on Thursdays, you know we spent a lot of time digging into ESG reporting developments, and in particular, the SEC's climate reporting proposal, as well as the ISSB and CSRD. However, today, we're going to pivot from mandatory reporting to voluntary reporting, which probably is the most significant reporting for most companies. And this occasion, it's the 25th anniversary of the Global Reporting Initiative, or probably known to you as GRI. So for this recording, I'm happy to be joined in our studio in New York City by Ilko van der Enden, the CEO of GRI, as well as Nadia Picard, PwC's global reporting leader. And our conversation is going to talk about some of the most significant developments in voluntary reporting. And then as well, of course, we're going to have to talk about the proposals, probably anything else that comes to mind as we go along. So both welcome. Can't wait to start our conversation. So with all that said, Ilko, welcome back to the podcast. And in particular, as I just told both of you, happy to have you actually in person makes such a huge difference. Um, but I think, you know, the occasion, as I mentioned, 25th anniversary of GRI, which, you know, for you helped us with an event yesterday. And I think the average age of the audience was probably younger than GRI, <laughs> I was thinking when you were speaking. Um, so, I mean, it's quite an accomplishment for the organization. And I know you're relatively new to GRI, but what does this sort of mean from an organizational perspective and how, how are people within the organization viewing this accomplishment? It has been a tremendous accomplishment and I'm, I'm, I'm very proud upon the organization, not only that we're still there, but that we do matter now more than ever before. Uh, our brand is stronger than ever before. We have more users than ever before more even than uh, uh, than before in uh, in the United States. The fact that we are still voluntarily standard, and I will come back to yes. this still in, uh, in, in a couple of minutes, means that people see the added value of using our standards, both for investors as well as businesses themselves, as well as all the other stakeholders. Why do I say we still are, of course, voluntarily? I don't know what the future will bring because I am not a regulator. And frankly, whether we will become mandatory or part of our standards become mandatory or not is in fact not my prerogative. What we do know, however, of course, is that in Europe, uh, with the EFREC and the uh, European uh, Sustainable Reporting Standards, there are big chunks of GRI standards copied in into that system. And it may be even more. So there you have a mandatory thing for which we, of course, as not regulator, can do nothing about. And frankly, whether it's mandatory or not is not so much as to my concern. What I even think is more interesting than mandatory uh, uh, imposed by regulators in whatever form is the fact that we see an increased interest but most certainly an increased push by large investors mm -hmm. to use our standards. So on the one side, we have voluntarily. On the other side, we have mandatory by law. And now in the middle, this big push by large investors to ask boardrooms to start using our standards, not only asking, 
but also bringing it uh, into the general shareholders meeting up to vote. And that is something that is, uh, that is indeed quite new. Well, and I want to come back to that because, Nadia, I know you also have some perspectives on that. But it occurred to me, Ilko, when you're speaking, for much of our audience, so our audience is controllers, finance departments, and the like, as well as people from PwC. And the, many of them, our podcast is a big education on ESG. And since we have been so focused on you know, these mandatory proposals, some of them may be less familiar even with sort of the main pillars or the main ideas of GRI. So can you give us the short version of when you are talking about GRI, really what you're saying? So GRI is basically built upon three pillars, our universal standards, our topic-specific standards, and sector standards. And our universal standards are basically, call it the constitution of reporting. So we give guidance on what and how to report, on how to do the materiality uh, testing within your organization to look for certain specific topics. However, we have just uh, uh, rejuvenated our universal standards. So they include certain topics that are always mandatory. Human rights, for example. You cannot choose not, not to report under human rights. Then we have topic-specific standards, and they see on either environmental or social or governmental topics. A big, big chunk of our standards is what I call on human capital. So think about human rights, child labor, safe workplace, indigenous people, right to organize, equal pay, and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, if you start to report under that part of, of, of our standards, you will typically be guided through a framework that enables you to easily extract the relevant data and to put it in the, the strict format that we provide so you can report. Why is that format as it is? Well, basically to provide society and investors with comparable data. Mm -hmm. That's what the standard is. It also enables auditors to have a look at the quality of a report eh, because controlling is comparing to a standard. So it eases up that work. Then we have the sector standards. We have a, a mining standard. We have one on fishery industries. Uh, there will be more. We are currently also drafting, by the way, our uh, biodiversity standard. And they basically take care of the entire value chain of that specific topic or that specific industry. So when you look, uh, for example, in mining, of course, there are climate and environmental topics, but there are also social topics because changing or closing down certain production facilities has a big impact on the communities where you operate in. Mm. And that, of course, also should be taken into account. And I think what our standards and the whole framework of the GRI standards does uh, particularly well is that it shows the interdependency and the connectivity between the various topics. Mm -hmm. There is not just, when it goes on climate or on governance, it's not just there's global warming and that's it. It is interrelated with the social aspect, what mm -hmm. global warming has, and with decisions being made in boardroom and how they take these specific risks into consideration. The framework is widely used eh, now by more than 11,000 multinationals, and they use it for various reasons. That's what we see. First of all, indeed, to provide comparable data to society and investors 
in order to show the endeavors they do when it comes to sustainability and the way of working and, and basically uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, making the stakeholders see that indeed the promises they've done mm -hmm. are indeed being materialized. So that's one. Another reason is that many businesses use our standards as, as guidance on how to build a framework around certain of these important topics as a uh, guidebook on what decisions to take and what elements to take into consideration from a policy point of view, but also when it comes to the way how you can best extract certain data, how you can manage them, and how you can report and how you can assess them. And thirdly, there eh, is, of course, the push we see by investor communities that they just tell you, if we invest in you in that certain industry, we basically expect for you that you can provide the same information mm -hmm. as other uh, businesses in your industry provide us. So please, can you start using GRI standards A, B, C, and D? It is an exciting time where we're living. It, is in, it goes now incredibly fast. We really try also after 25 years to drive to this global comprehensive baseline for corporate reporting when it comes to financial and impact reporting. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that would serve uh, not only business and humanity as such, but the entire value chain uh, when it comes to, to reporting to capital markets and to increasing credibility of the entire system. Again, both for capital markets as well as, as for society as a whole. We think that if we do not get to a, a, a global comprehensive baseline, we are at risk that we see many regulators, many jurisdictions going to move things by themselves. And that would even uh, fragment the landscape more, which will create less comparability, uh, more uncertainty, higher cost of compliance. Why am I such a strong advocate on this uh, global comprehensive baseline? It's because there is a proof of concept. It's already there, 25 years. That's not a mean thing. My, basically, my daughter was born when <laughs> she just became 25. So, there you go. And of the 11,000 large businesses that voluntarily report under our standards, they all report either under international accounting standards or financial accounting standards, or both. Mm -hmm. Is it perfect? Nothing is perfect. We can improve. But there is a proof of concept that apparently investors and capital markets, large businesses, and many other stakeholders like the way how this is approached on these two pillars. So looking at initiatives in Europe, at EFREC, I will not go into details on materiality issues, looking at uh, what's happening in the US with the SEC, I would like to ask from all regulators to stay as close by which what is already there, mm -hmm. what has proven itself as valuable, that has proven itself to work, that apparently large businesses take on board on a voluntary basis so apparently they see a merit in it to make the investment to start reporting like that. And I will stop now here my marketing 
for. <laughs> That's okay. I gave you an open-ended question. And maybe before we go on, uh, Nadia, I, obviously you were also listening uh, to Ilko, and I know you've spent a lot of time studying all these voluntary frameworks and the state of both financial reporting and ESG reporting, and just any general response or perspective when you think about either the idea of the global universal standard or pressure from investors, anything that stood out for you there. Maybe taking it back for a second. Yeah. Um, I think it needs a little bit of explaining on why I think investors are all of a sudden asking for GRI information. Investors obviously want to understand what a company is about and what mm -hmm. the risks and opportunities are related to that company. And that's a lot of the words that we've been using around ESG reporting, what are the risks and opportunities of climate change to that particular company, physical risk, transition risk, all of that. An analysis of that, taken strictly, does not necessarily cover the impact that a company has on the environment, the people, the impact that a company has by sheerly emitting CO2. Mm -hmm. right? That's the lens that GRI is taking. It's looking broadly at um, the impact of companies' actions on the stakeholders and on society and the planet. Again, back to the question, why are investors interested in that? Well, I think it's because there is an increased understanding that a company's behavior will ultimately come back and affect that company or not affect that particular company, but probably affect companies in that investor's mm -hmm. portfolio. So will impact other companies. And investors start to understand these connections, these intricacies a lot better. And therefore, they're asking for a different lens of ESG reporting than just, quote unquote, the cash flow impact on that particular company. So I think that's an important point to understand. And that's also, these two lenses are the lenses that the European Union is mm -hmm. asking companies to report on. What's the impact on me and what is my impact on everybody else? And that's why I think GRI has a tremendously important role to play in providing that bridge between the remit of the ISSB, which mm -hmm. is investor-oriented information, and the impact-oriented information that GRI is providing is if you take it literally, the sum of what the European Union is looking at, right? So, and there you see a bit of a path towards how we can build the system. So that's a couple of um, reactions here. And again, back to Another point that Ilko made is um, experience in reporting and experience in dealing with the data. I haven't counted them myself, so I trust Ilko <laughs> in his disclosures that he has more than 11,000 corporates using GRI. A couple of jokes in that sentence. But 11,000 companies using GRI and having struggled through collecting the data and, and getting through the experience of making sure the data is complete and accurate and comparable from period to period, and how do I deal with boundaries and, and, and all of that, does provide a good basis for any other type of regulatorily imposed reporting. And we should be all using that experience and leveraging of that and not trying to reinvent the wheel, but really leverage on the basis that is already built in a lot of cases. 
Well, and I think it's an interesting point, and actually we asked Ilko this question yesterday in this internal PwC forum, and I'm curious your view. Someone asked the question of, you know, we, we do see sort of this combined reporting, I'll call it combined, in Europe in terms of you're going to have sort of the financial and the impact reporting. Obviously, the ISSB and SEC have somewhat of a different approach. And someone asked Ilko if he thought we would ever see the SEC move in the direction of pulling some of that, let's call it the impact reporting, into the mandatory reporting. Curious your views on that. Let me start with, I'm European, so. (laughs) Yes, I should have made that clear. They both are, so. (laughs) No, but look, it's a bit of a crystal ball, and certainly not a PwC opinion, it's an audio opinion. Yes. We hear investors start to ask about that information. So it starts to become investor-relevant. So they don't ask for information just for the sake of having that information. They are basing decision on it. So taking that back to the remit of the SEC is providing the capital markets with decision usefulness, useful information for investors. Then, well, the conclusion is impact reporting is important to investors. So sooner or later, the SEC has to consider this. Yeah. How and when and, and, and to what level that will be adopted by the SEC, and I think when is, is probably mm-hmm. the operative word here, remains to be seen. But I think they have to. Ilko, do you want to share your views? I'm also European. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at the, uh, at the current political landscape in, uh, in the United States, I don't see a possibility soon that uh, the SEC's mandate will be broadened. But then on the other hand, I agree with Nadia, this is important to investors. And that's also one of the reasons why you see that more and more companies are seriously looking into this. Mm. It is relevant also from a risk managerial point of view. Uh, we, we, we see some, some states in, in, in the United States and some lobby and pressure groups in, uh, in the EU more or less fighting against too much ESG or an anti-sustainability woke movement uh, coming up. And I was, I, w- I was giving it a thought and I, there was something that I couldn't completely match. Like uh, we had World Economic Forum and IBC's report on stakeholder capitalism. Uh, and when I got this question from a Bloomberg journalist, what my views were on this, I, c- I came to perhaps something like a surprising conclusion. If you look at stakeholder capitalism, I still do not like that word, but in fact it is extended risk management. Mm-hmm. And let me give you the examples. And you cannot, by law, either force investors not to invest in companies that have proper risk management in place because that would be detrimental to their, uh, to their objectives. So assume you are in retail and you do not take climate change, global warming into account in your pricing uh, and energy strategies, you will have a big problem with your investors because the price uh, of the cost of your uh, operation will go up because you need more cooling facilities and more energy. That is typically an E element. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are in a platform organization and you work through warehouses, if you do not take the safe workplace, social equality, uh, equal pay uh, into account in your organization, in your warehouses, you will face sooner or later 
a response by staff. They either go or they organize themselves and block, mm -hmm. which is detrimental to your bottom line, which is typically the letter S. If you are, for example, in mining industry and you do not have your anti-bribery process policies in place and something goes wrong in the country and there appears to have been a case of bribery, you will be faced with, uh, with lawsuits, with criminal investigations, and more likely than not in certain regions, you will lose the right to perform mining activities, which typically is the G of governance. Mm -hmm. So we have here an E, an S, and an G, and mitigating and managing those risks is a not a moral but a legal obligation by boards. And not doing them because they are perceived by some as woke is, I think, just mismanagement. And I've been a, uh, I've been a chief risk officer at a multinational organization. And risk management is more about uh, decreasing the insurance premiums uh, that you want to pay. Mm -hmm. It is about preventing risks to materialize. And it's about mitigating them. And that's also what we currently see happening in, in, in the field of ESG. It's long-term risk management. So this will all contribute in the end to a landscape whereby you will see these two pillars on equal footing of equal importance, which means to uh, Nadja and you and your colleagues a tremendous amount of work because I'm pretty much convinced that we move into the direction of assurance on these reports be it not first mandatory, like in Europe with limited assurance, but mandatory. If it indeed is so important to investors and it will develop even mm -hmm. more, how many investors do you know that will take financial reports serious that have not been somehow been provided with a level of comfort by an external accountant? Mm -hmm. None. If indeed impact information is of equal importance, it will go in that direction also. I'm absolutely convinced that will happen. Well, Nadia and I think would both agree with you on that point. I mean, I do think even from the investor surveys we've done, we've heard they want that level of assurance because of, you know, to your point, they want to be able to rely on the information. So I think that's a key point. Do you have something else you wanted to add? The one point is we're all learning <coughs> as we go along on this journey. As companies start thinking through their business strategies and how they can make those business strategies more sustainable and what are the data and the metrics they are using to demonstrate that, but also to support their decision-making, whether to invest into something or not to invest into something, and how that relates to other parts of their business. We're really at the beginning, and there's quite a bit of turmoil and, and misunderstanding and, and resistance to the things that are currently changing. But I think with the technological means that we have to find data, assess data, capture data, make sure that data are properly governed mm -hmm. and then possibly assured, we will see that a lot of the uncertainty that we're currently facing will go away and we will be much easier able to, to build a more comprehensive system of disclosures that is decision useful for investors, for employees as they take their decisions, for customers as, as they make their buying decisions, right? And, and even for, for suppliers 
because they might have to choose between companies in a competitive world that they deliver to. So, so covering that whole spectrum will be vastly supported by the availability um, of appropriate data. Yeah? And, and that's the one thing that we should not forget, that that's the journey that companies should be going on in looking at their company strategy and the data they need to support that proper strategy. So maybe following on that point of data, one thing that's interesting, you mentioned this more than 11,000 companies using GRI, but one of the things we hear often when we're talking to companies is, oh, well, I don't follow a framework. I, I pick and choose. You know, so right now they sort of pick some from TCFD, some GRI, you know, some from here and there. And I do think there's some views that some of the mandatory reporting is going to help from a comparability. You make a good point, though, that to be, you know, in accordance with GRI, you need to, to meet this framework. But I'm curious from both of your views, and maybe Nadia starting with you, because I know you study so much reporting, do you think a company in this sort of interim that is doing this piecemeal, are they really helping their investors or should they be moving one way or another to a more standard type of reporting? Mm, I'm not going to make friends with my next statement, but pick and choose sounds a little bit like uh, the triple adjusted EBITDA, which um, I, I, I sometimes... <laughs> well, no, no, I'm troubled by pick and choose, I'll share. So maybe I use the pejorative term because of that. <laughs> yeah, which I sometimes call EBUPs, yeah, earnings yeah. before all the bad stuff. So where does that take us? That takes us to the trust component of the discussion. If I pick and choose, how can I, as a user of that information, be really certain that I haven't left out right. the bad news. Yeah. And, and that's really one of the reasons for the call for really rigorous standards mm-hmm. that prevent you from leaving out the bad stuff. That's why I would always call for somewhat rigorous standards because it adds that honesty and it adds that transparency across. And it adds transparency because it clearly defines how to calculate something and that then makes it comparable to other disclosures and only then can you place proper decisions on it. If you pick and choose, and a little bit from here and a little bit from there, you might be able to tell a good story, but that's not the only reason for providing sustainability Mm -hmm. information. It goes really hard down to business decisions and investment decisions and employment decisions and delivery decisions and buying decisions. Right. And Ilko, I guess I'm curious for you, you know, when you're talking to companies, and I hear this, I'm assuming you do too, say, well, I would follow GRI completely, but just this one part, it just doesn't really work for my company. So how do you respond to that if, I mean, maybe financial reporting doesn't exactly work for every company, but we all manage to squeeze into that box. So I'm just curious your perspective on, again, this, I'll call it selective reporting. Let's use that. As Nadia said, uh, leave out all the bad stuff. Exactly. So you, 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 you pick and choose those topics that you find interesting mm-hmm. uh, because you know you will have a good scorecard on that one. Mm-hmm. What we know, and that's what I always advise uh, uh, our users, our potential users, is to think very good before you take a step and make a decision and that you should take your time before you make the decision. Because what attracts most attention of, let's call it, activistic stakeholders Mm -hmm. in organizations is not the information you publish, it's the information you don't publish. Mm -hmm. 
So look at your peers in a certain industry. Look what they report under GRI or which standard. Mm -hmm. And benchmark yourself also against that one. And then you must be absolutely sure that if you are going for a pick and choose, which is with some of our standards just not possible, by the right. way, technically you're not allowed to. Right. But even if you would contemplate it, what the effects would be in uh, the assessment of society or investors, if you leave out certain topics, include other topics, whereas 80% of your peer group just does report it. Mm-hmm. And we, we had these discussions, for example, on, on the GRI tech standard. has been uh, widely debated uh, of recent in some, in some boardrooms and on some shareholder meetings here uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in, in the U.S., Having discussions with, with some business leaders say, yeah, if we report that, then we think that uh, it will be too difficult for people to understand because it is a complicated matter. And we don't know what the reactions will be by society or some if we say this. And it is certain qualified information and, and sensitive information in there. The issue you typically have there is that it is an important topic for and to society, to politics, etc., etc. Especially nowadays with the huge budget deficits on the energy crisis mm-hmm. post-COVID. And that many, many, many large businesses do report it. So you will immediately have the lens upon you why you do not report under that specific standard, whereas others do. And there's another element, and that is in this specific case, but I have other examples, where some authorities start to revert to standards. When you look at so-called cooperative compliance models uh, system-based audit uh, audit approaches uh, that we see in many, 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 many countries happening, they refer to public disclosure standards. So the Dutch tax administration refers to GRI 207 as benchmark to be a so-called trusted taxpayer when it comes to agreeing rulings under cooperative compliance models. And we hear this pops up more, that that is a complete new stakeholder group perhaps uh, for a business, but tax administration take notice on the willingness of businesses to provide certain information. It enhances your profile. So again, the pick and choose, it's not so much what you choose, it's more about what you don't choose. Mm -hmm. I have to put in a qualifier, Heather. Of course. Um, Let me be very clear. I think picking and choosing from various standards and and sort of painting a picture that suits you Mm -hmm. is not a good thing. And that's what we need rigorous standards for. Let me express very clearly that I'm very fully aware of the difficulties of actually finding the data and and making sure that the data is complete and accurate and that it is a journey for companies, right? I fully understand if a company says... I can't do it all in year one. Let me start with climate and do a really good job on climate and then add the other topics, right? And that's also part of the discussion that we find around adoption of ISSB or really currently in Europe, adoption of CSRD. 
it will be really, really difficult for businesses and companies to comply fully with the standards. And there is a big fear that we will see a host of qualified opinions in the market initially because companies struggle so much. So I, I think we have to clearly distinguish between the two different levels of pick and choose, right? The one is the ability and the, one, the other one is a will to sort of paint a different picture than what reality probably mm -hmm. demands. Well, I think that's a hugely important point. And I do think part of the reason of having the say CSRD or the SEC rules or ISSB would be that if companies see here is my goal, you know, the goal line, then, okay, I know I have to have to do all those things. And maybe it is a journey. Hopefully everyone will make it before they have the mandatory reporting. But you do raise a really good point that I wanted to bring up which is targets and goals, because this is one of the places in particular, I think we are seeing a lot of questions, somewhat in the context of CSRD, because you're being asked to set mm -hmm. targets and goals because of behavioral change. But even with the SEC uh, proposal, because you need to disclose your climate-related targets and goals. And in some cases, companies have gone from this was originally a, a marketing um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm a company. This is important to me. I'm going to market that I'm going to say net zero or I'm going to be diverse or all these different goals. But maybe there's never a true plan <laughs> for how to get there. Now, with this additional rigor, companies are saying, I might need to change my targets and goals. Or I might need to think differently about setting them. So again, just curious as you're talking to companies and clients and they're struggling with, hey, I set this goal in 2018 we're not going to make it, or we realize it's not the right goal, or, or just any sort of advice in that area? Just any thoughts, Nadia? But that's what that rigor is for, right? So taking it from marketing into a real considered feasible disclosure that you can be held accountable for, right? And then understanding, is that enough? Or do we need to do more, mm -hmm. either as a company or as a society to support companies to get there earlier. So, in other words, I think the idea behind having to report on targets and goals and then underpinning it with milestones on how you get there, so actually making transparent mm -hmm. what the plan is, I think that is really, really useful information and that is really what gets us to embedding sustainability in business strategies and giving a transparent picture on what are you doing as a company about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is room for disclosure to say, I don't have targets and goals around this, right? And then we'll see how the market reacts, reacts to that. To that. Yeah. Yes. But if it's an honest disclosure to say, this is my gender mm -hmm. ratios, and currently I don't have a good plan in place to change that, then let's be transparent about it and then see what the market says and change it maybe next year as the board considers the good prospects of changing that particular ratio. Or maybe one that greenhouse gas is not as important to your company because you're not a huge emitter or even your scope three, but maybe gender is important. So I think there also is an element for some companies, different goals could exactly. be more important. I know that targets and goals and milestones that this scares companies, yes. really, particularly <laughs> in, in the US environment, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't live here every day, but I can only hope for this really sensible disclosure to find the patience with regulators to say, well, if I put out targets and goals, I can be wrong. I can find that I don't 
meet my targets and goals. Yeah, I put out guidance in the financial markets on what my profitability will be. Well, something happens and I don't make that. And, and that is not a wrong disclosure. That's just reality and we can't foresee the future. So we all need a little bit of patience with each other to make that system work. If I may add to that, from a GRI angle, and we are a business-friendly standard setter, our purpose is to enable business, society, and investors to make calculated decisions on impacts based on facts, not on perceptions. That's all. If you start to report perceptions or inflated information to look better than you in fact are, which is also known as greenwashing when it comes into the ESG or, or sustainability atmosphere, it is by some not perceived as bad as blowing up your, your balance sheet mm. or increasing your profits that are basically not there and because that, that's what we call financial fraud or bookkeeping fraud. However, the effects of painting a rosier picture on gender, on climate, on child labor, mm -hmm. or whatever, what you do basically is that you see to it that stakeholders, investors, make decisions not based on facts that perhaps they wouldn't have made if they would have seen the clear picture. Although some, some corporate marketing departments or corporate communication departments and in some boardrooms it is still seen as, oh, let's, uh, let's say something nice, it fits within our marketing strategy. It isn't. You are providing false information to markets and financial markets. And that is on equal footing as financial fraud. If indeed, that's my view, it is as important to investors and to stakeholders information as the financial information. Uh, it's pretty dangerous not to take this stuff serious when start reporting it. And we know some cases, of course, uh, here also in the United States, where some organizations were completely GRI compliant, but in practice, they were not. Mm -hmm. And then you face the wrath of, of your investors and all the legal stuff that will be happening. Dangerous territory. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I actually have, I've been making questions. I have still a whole list, but we are getting closer on time. And I do just want to get some final thoughts for the audience. Maybe something we were planning to talk <clears throat> about, we didn't. Or I, I always like to ask what advice you have for people, particularly, I think, think of the controller or the CFO who's new to this, and they've been on this huge learning curve. What do you tell them as they sort of look ahead to this broad ESG landscape? It's all about collaboration. We often find in the debate that sustainability people need to learn about reporting, reporting people need to learn about sustainability, and all of that is possibly and hopefully driving a new agenda into companies where the C-suite needs to talk to each other on how to tackle this. And I think it can only be tackled if people talk to each other and collaborate because it is important and it needs to be done properly. And it's new, so we need to find new ways, all of us together, to provide the best reporting there is and to struggle through the system that we're currently building. Big words, but I think collaboration is, is one of the words that, that keeps coming to my head as we talk about it. Great advice. How about your co-thoughts? If you as an organization are serious about sustainability and it's a part of your strategy and strategic objectives, you should consider reporting on those topics. However, 
you should think it through well. It is sometimes not per se a very easy exercise. Mm -hmm. It is something you must be prepared to invest in. But when it stands, it stands. And it yields a lot of value going forward. But take your time. And above all, I would advise you, go and speak with peers that been through this journey already and that are reporting under, for example, GRI standards. What did they came across? What are their experiences? Can you get some advice and some best practices on how to manage it? Because let's not forget that the questions many controllers and financial officers have that I speak with are basically exactly the same questions with the introduction of international accounting standards and financial accounting standards, or here in the US, after Enron, Sarbanes-Oxley. Mm -hmm. How do we tame this beast? How do we do it? So now that's tamed and financial reporting and, and, and Sarbox are just like everyday life, completely embedded into, into process, business cycles and, and, and standard reports. The same applies to sustainability reporting. It is just another topic but in fact, the same routine and the same exercise. All right. Those are big words to end on, but excellent advice. And I was thinking while you guys were wrapping up, I need you both to come back at the same time so we can continue this conversation because, as I said, I have a lot more questions. And I think once we see what happens over the next couple of months, we're going to have even more questions to talk <laughs> about. So both, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate all the insight. My pleasure. Thank you, Heather. Thank you very much. To our listeners, thank you also for joining us today. Please join us back again next week where we'll have new ESG episodes as well as continuing our accounting series. As always, you can find us at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.